laws of um, about conversion and the steps it takes to convert. So, but this week we're going to focus a little bit on kosher and some <coughs> some of the basics of kosher. So, firstly, the Hebrew word kosher means fit. It just means fit. 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 Like it fits. It's okay, in other words. That's what the word kosher means. And the word kosher could be used in, is used in um, scripture, is used in the Talmud, in all sorts of different contexts. Anything could be fit. If it's fit, it's kosher. So, but for some reason over the years, the word kosher, or in Hebrew, kasher, became more synonymous with food. Food that is fit for us to eat. When we usually speak of kosher, we speak of that food that we're allowed to eat. Now, what do the kosher laws involve? So, they involve a couple different things. Firstly, there's our animal-based products. We have very, very strict rules on which animal-based products we're allowed to eat. That's the first part of kosher. Second part of kosher is our, um, is there are specific laws, most of which are not, um, most of which are not relevant outside the land of Israel with regard to, um, to plants or vegetation. So, um, certain vegetation has certain rules with it in order for it to be fit to eat, most of which apply in the land of Israel. The third rule, set of rules have to do with preparation of food, certain, the preparation of certain food, um, and then the, uh, in certain ways makes it not kosher. And then the, um, then the a fourth group, would be, or a fourth set of rules would be particularly not mixing milk and meat together. And as we'll see, in many ways, this is the most complex of them all. It's mentioned in this week's Torah portion, <laughs> the mixing of milk and meat. So let's start with one at a time. We'll go through them, and then we'll talk about what it takes to have a kosher kitchen. So starting with um, the rules of kosher animal. So the Torah, um, not in this week's Torah portion, but in Parashat Shmini, coming up, the Torah lists a whole list of rules of things that are kosher among animals, only animals that chew their cud and have split hooves, that means their um, legs at the bottom are split. Um, only those animals are kosher. Later in Parashat Re'eh, the Torah is going to list 10 kosher animals, 10 animals that have um, split hooves and chew their cud. Those are the only kosher animals amongst domesticated animals. That's just a cow, sheep, and goat uh, among, among wild animals that's different forms of deer and goats and other similar kinds of animals. So, <laughs> um, but we're somewhat, um, the animal that the Torah makes very clear is not kosher, of course, is the pig, is the domesticated animal that's not kosher, but so is horses and camels and any animal that doesn't, either doesn't chew its cud, as the pig, or has split hooves but doesn't chew its cud, or, um, Choose its cub, but doesn't have split hooves, such as the camel. Kyla, can you help her? So, so, the, so those are the animals specifically that are kosher. Now, even among kosher animals, even if you have kosher meat, kosher cow, sheep, and goats, you're limited as to how you prepare. And there's a number of different rules that we're limited in that make it making creating kosher animals very limited. Um, sorry, before I get to kosher animals, we're also told we also have limits on kosher fowl, which fowl we could eat, which birds we could eat. 
um, we're <coughs> we're only allowed to eat. Um, we're, or there's a, the Torah gives a list of about 24 birds that we're not allowed to eat. Um, and in other words, every other bird we can eat. Because we weren't very good at keeping track of which birds we couldn't eat, we essentially only eat birds that we have a tradition, that they're okay, or birds that fit certain descriptions that our tradition gives us. We have a list of about a dozen different species of birds that we actually do eat. Um, so now in birds and meat uh, and animal, in their preparation, there's a number of different steps. Firstly, um, the birds and the animals have to be slaughtered. They're not allowed to just be killed. They have to be slaughtered. And in order for them to be slaughtered, there's five rules of slaughtering. There's five basic rules of slaughtering. Um, but perhaps the most central rule is that they have to be slaughtered with a knife that has no nicks on it. It is perfectly smooth. And what the ritual slaughter has to do, the shochet has to actually sharpen their knife, and it's a skill to sharpen a perfectly smooth knife. If you feel your knives at home, you'll feel that they're not smooth. How do you know whether your knife is smooth or not? You, with, your, with your nail, very good, with your nail. You check your nail, and you see on your nail, if you're, you're, you're you run your nail up and down, and you could tell if it's smooth. It also has to be very sharp. You're not allowed to press. It has to... Um, uh, it ha the knife itself has to be very sharp, and so um, the way you tell if it's very sharp is you touch it to your skin, and if it's very sharp, it will sink into your skin. So <laughs> it does it, it nicks your skin. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt. It's sharp. Sorry. Yeah, it's sharp. So they used to test it on their tongues. I don't know how they did that. I don't know any shocha that does it today. Sorry. Very carefully. Very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you're probably, I guess your tongue is more sensitive. It can feel it better. So, um, so anyway, so that way you could tell if it's very, so it has to be perfectly sharp. And um, it's hard because as you slaughter, especially today when they do commercial slaughtering, um, and you're doing a lot of animals in one shot, uh, you've got to make sure that the knife itself doesn't get, um, as you slaughter, it doesn't get nicks on it. So, um, you've got to have special types of knives and um, this, and you've got to keep sharpening it as, even as you slaughter. Um, so this, it has to be slaughtered properly. Then even after it's slaughtered, the animal must be checked to make sure it's not a trefa. A trefa is a list of about 100 diseases or um, defects. Not really diseases, defects that an animal can have. And if it has any of those 100 or so defects, it's not kosher. Now, if you're aware of the defect, then, you're, then the animal's no good. However, if you're unaware of the defect, you don't have to check for most defects since most defects are rare. So we don't bother checking, except for defects of the lungs, which are very, very common. So we always have to check the defects of the lungs. Um, a very significant percentage, depending on where it is, um, have defects in the lungs. Um, and there's, diff there's a different standards. There's regular kosher, there's glut, which is when the lungs are extra, uh, extra smooth. Um, majority of animals here in the US are not glut or are not are usually not used. So what they would do is they slaughter the animals and then they send them off to the non-kosher slaughterhouse um, because half the animals are not usable. So then even after you've taken it, you've checked that it's not a trefa, the next stage that you need with the animals, if it's a cow, sheep, or goat, which were animals that were offered as sacrifices, so there are fats um, that in the animal, all the fats that are in the, over the stomachs were um, 
All the fats over the stomachs were offered on the altar. All those fats are forbidden to eat. So you have to go through a process of cutting out all of those forbidden fats. We then are also forbidden in a cow, sheep, or goat. We're forbidden from eating the, um, or for in any animal, in fowl we're allowed, but we're forbidden from eating the sciatic nerve in any animal. And so we have to cut out the sciatic nerve. Another skill. They usually don't bother today. They just cut off the whole bottom of the animal and send it to the non-kosher. But because um, it's, it's a process to cut off the sciatic nerve, but it's doable. So we cut off the sciatic nerve. Then after we do that, um, you then have to, um, whatever is left of the animal that you can still eat, we then have to um, t get out the blood. The way we drain the blood is with a two-step or three-step process. First, we soak it for a half hour. Then we salt it very heavily with salt. That's, by the way, where the term kosher salt comes from. You ever heard kosher, seen yeah. kosher salt? Kosher salt is not any more kosher than regular salt. All salt is kosher. Um, minerals have no kosher laws. So um, all salt is kosher. Kosher salt is the salt used for koshering. In other words, for getting the, um, for getting the blood out of the animal. It's a very coarse kind of salt that we use for kosher. So then we, um, so then, uh, so yeah, then you have to salt the animal, and then after salting it, you have to for an hour, you have to sit, letting it sit in the salt for an hour. We then rinse it out, rinse it three times in water. So now you're finally able to eat your meat, and that's the process of preparing the meat. Any animal product that was not prepared in a kosher way is not kosher. So if you have any animal-based product. Um, let's say a chemical that's made with fat that's put into your food, it wouldn't be kosher if it's made if it's animal-based if it wasn't prepared from kosher meat or kosher fowl. Um, then in addition to kosher meat, we also have laws for, for kosher insects. There are only, the only kinds of kosher insects that you're allowed to eat are grasshoppers. Every other insect is non-kosher. Um, because of the problem of non-kosher insects, um, we're very careful when it comes to food, when it comes to vegetables. A lot of vegetables have, a lot of vegetables have um, insects inside them. And we can't eat those vegetables if they have insects. And we're required to, ch any vegetable that is likely to have insects, um, that there's a significant percentage of them have insects, we have to check those vegetables. So any leafy vegetable, such as lettuce, or broccoli, or cauliflower, or celery, or uh, any just about any leafy vegetable, it has to be checked for kale. Um, trying to think of the rest of them, spinach. They all have to be checked for bugs. Make sure that there's no bugs on them. Some of them could be very, very difficult to check. Yes. How do you kosher them? No, you just have to check them. So before you check your lettuce, gotta check it carefully. Um, some of them, spinach is very, uh, you check your spinach, um, cauliflower or broccoli are hard to check. Yeah. You, you could, so what we do is we soak them in water and the bugs will rise to the warm water, the bugs will rise to the top. <coughs> I put vinegar in my water. When I vinegar doesn't help, it only kills them. Yeah. You have to just let it soak so that they rise to the top. Um, yes? How do you slaughter the animals? Is there a certain way that the animal is slaughtered? Yeah, it's slaughtered with a knife. Yeah, very quickly. It's the most humane way to slaughter. I'm going to do a class one day on kosher slaughter. That's a class for itself. So yes? Is that about hunting? Or is 
Yes, yes, very good point. It is ju ju in Judaism you cannot hunt because um, hunting you um, hunting you're going to kill the animal without the kosher slaughter. So yes, ju Jews do not allow hunting, and we also do not allow hunting for sport for other reasons. It's inhumane. Well, we don't have the term of humane, but it's cruel to animals and it's pro it's prohibited. Yes. So. Um, they did hunt with traps. They did hunt deer with traps. You are allowed to hunt with traps. And then slaughter the deer when, you might, when it gets caught. So, so then, um, so, so with regards, we've got to be really careful with um, insects. you also got to be careful with certain fruit that have insects, um, such as certain berries, um, blackberries and red berries and um, strawberries. Um, also things, things, um, Turkish things, from my experience, 50% of them have worms. Worms. Y yeah. You got to open them and check each one. You open them up and look to see if there's anything moving. Sometimes they have, <laughs> sometimes the worms, sometimes the worms are dead. So you'll, you'll notice, but you'll see they're, they're white. You see little white lines. They're easy. They're fairly easy to see. You just have to look carefully. Um, so we have to check all our food for these kind of bugs um, before we eat them. Um, which, uh, so, so it's not just it's not just the animals, but also things. All the all the vegetables have to be checked for bugs. You could buy pre-checked um, things that were kind of checked by mashkichim. Sorry. Um, you could get them in. Um, you get them in the most of the kosher stores. Sell them. They actually also had a thing. They don't really. They in Gush Katif, which was in Gaza before they evacuated Gaza. There was actually a thing called Ale Katif, which they have a very small version now. But the original were these. Um, they had these very large hot houses where they would grow bugless vegetables. So it's actually possible with. Um, they grew bugless um, in these airtight hot houses. They grew bugless vegetables. Yes. Can I ask you about vegetables? Does it, does it make any difference if it's caught by the net fruit, caught with a hook, spear fish? Or I didn't get to fish yet. You're jumping ahead. Okay. okay. Or checking inside the I didn't mention fish yet. Okay. I, I just mentioned animals and insects. Frozen vegetables are the same problem. Frozen cauliflower um, uh, or frozen uh, frozen broccoli is going to have the same problem. But there are pre-checked brands or no? I think there are. I think there are. I don't do the shopping in my house, but I think there are. So, um, so you got it. So, so um, animals were very limited what we could eat. Bugs, almost no bugs, with the exception of some grasshoppers. Um, when it comes to us, so we've got to be very. We have to be we have to be very, very careful about the. Um, we have to be very careful checking for bugs, and then when it comes to fish, we're also limited or sea animals. We can only have um, sea animals that have fins and scales. So um, the Talmud says any animal that has scales has fins too, but it has to be a fish that has fins and scales. It has to be scales that are peelable, that can be peeled, um, and um, it has to have and so copy scales that just fall off. So, um, so that also limits the fi our fish or seafood intake. 
Then, so, that, so that's all with regard to um, animal-based products. Then with regard to our, um, um, then with regard to our um, vegetables, most of the rules with regard to fruit and vegetables um, only take place outside the land of Israel. Uh, uh, sorry, in the land of Israel. Very few take place outside the land of Israel. One that, one that takes place outside the land of Israel is you cannot eat a tree less than, that grows fruit at less than three years old. However, according to, however, it's very, very rare for fruit to ever grow in a tree under three years old, and therefore we don't have to worry about it. You don't have to ask. But if you do have a tree and you know that the fruit is under three years old, you cannot eat it. Um, but other than that, there, it, there aren't really too many fruit, uh, fruits or vegetables outside the land of Israel. But if you buy fruits from Israel, you're buying oranges, you've got to be very careful. Because if you buy fruits and vegetables from Israel, over there there's very strict rules. There's tithing that have to be um, separated, and there's very strict rules about what has to be done to the fruit from Israel in order to make it kosher. So um, although we want to support Israel, you've got to be careful with its fruit. Um, it could be non-kosher as well. Um, then when it comes, other than that, most fruit and vegetables is kosher. When it comes to fruit pre food preparation, we have a number of rules. Um, one is with wine. Wine products or all grape products must be only prepared by a Jew. If they're prepared by non-Jews, then they're non-kosher. Um, the same is also with regard to cooking. Um, we only eat food that is cooked or baked by Jews. If the Jew turned on the fire, that's good enough. And so um, I come here every Sunday morning and make sure to turn on the fire for our omelets so that your omelets will always be kosher. So those are rules with regard to food preparation. Then the third set of rules, sorry, the fourth set of rules that we have, the fourth set is regard to mixing, which is with regard to, um, is regard to mixing milk and meat. And that's the most important part of the kosher kitchen. And here's why. You want to have a kosher kitchen. So the easiest thing is only put co buy kosher food for your kitchen. If you never buy non-kosher food, if non-kosher food never gets into your kitchen, that's the first step. So what do you do? You only buy kosher food. That's step number one to having a kosher kitchen. Only buy kosher food. Luckily, here in the United States, we have no shortage of kosher food available. There were other places, um, or there were times, when you couldn't always get kosher. One day, um, I'll do a class, hopefully, on the kosher industry, the kosher food industry. Um, but today, I think it's valued at a $10 billion industry, the kosher food industry. Just the kosher side of the industry, that is. Um, and, uh, it, and a very, very large percentage of food in this country, I think it's about 50% of all non-perishables um, in your grocery store are kosher. So um, very, lar very large that have kosher certification today. So perishables when it comes to breads, there's still quite a lot that are kosher. Um, when it comes to when it comes to meat, you're already very limited. When it comes to dairy, you're somewhat limited. And there you need already kosher stores. But today, a lot of stores, Trader Joe's in particular, but a lot of other stores will sell kosher food. Uh, Costco sells kosher cheeses. Um, Trader Joe's sells kosher cheeses and kosher meats. Um, so there's a lot that you could get 
Okay, standards are kosher. That's a very good question. So, Jewish law, Jonathan wants to, John wants to know, there's a lot of, um, you often hear about different standards of kosher. Before we, we mentioned glut. Before we mentioned glut, that some animals, some animals are glut, the lungs are smooth, some are not smooth. Some are smooth, some are not smooth. So, thank you. So the um, so there's different standards, and the reason for that is that Jewish law is not always black and white. There's a lot of gray in Jewish laws and Jewish rules. Often it's not clear. Often it varies from community to community. Often even within the community, the um, rule is that this is okay, but it's not ideal. So we have often rulings like that. It's okay, but it's not ideal, and things like that. So. Sorry? So we've had, so among the issues was how smooth the lungs have to be. Another issue was um, in milk. Milk, of course, has to come from a kosher animal. Um, and according to Jewish law, a Jew must supervise the milk production um, or the milking of the cow. And um, it's debated whether that rule still applies today. And there were those that um, argued that that rule should not apply today, and so therefore some people will have milk that is called halav stam, milk that was not supervised, um, and then while many others will say that you need milk that is supervised um, by a Jew, which would be considered called halav Israel. So those are different, <coughs> yes? What made you kosher cow? You can't look at the lungs to get the milk out. So how, how do you know, that's an excellent question, how do you know that the cow is kosher and it's not trade. We assume that most most cows are kosher. So we follow the majority. It's a standard rule. We assume that it's kosher unless we have reason to believe that it's not. X-ray. No, we don't need an x-ray then. So... Do, do government standards for milk automatically... Like, that's debatable. That's the debate. That is the debate. So... You can have the same problem. It has to, if it's milk-based, then you have a problem with the milk if the milk's not kosher, unless the milk is kosher. So, um, but that's, maybe we could do another class on Khalavi Sal. a lot of different topics that we need to talk about. But I want to focus on the kitchen today. So you want to make a kosher kitchen. So step number one is only buy kosher foods. That, that's an easy, very, very easy step. You only buy kosher foods, your kitchen's only going to be kosher. Don't bring any non-kosher food into your kitchen. What happens if you did bring non-kosher food into your kitchen? What if your kitchen has previously been non-kosher and you now want to make your kitchen kosher? So then you have to go through what we call a koshering process, which I'll describe in a moment. We have to actually go through a process of making your kitchen kosher. But assuming that you have a brand new kitchen, you want your kitchen to be kosher, rule number one is only bring kosher food into your kitchen. Now, some, there's some non-kosher food that you cannot really control in your kitchen. The bugs. The bugs, right? The bugs. You buy lettuce in the store, and what are you going to do? Not bring it into your kitchen until you're certain that there's no bugs. There's nothing you can do, right? So the, over there, that's easy. You just check the lettuce, and you make sure that you take it. You can check it in your kitchen. It's okay. You just throw out the bugs, and you're fine. As long as you didn't cook it, you're okay. But other than the bugs... 
don't bring non-cooked bugs. You have no, there's no way to have a kitchen without bringing bugs into it. Even if you don't bring bugs, they're going to come themselves. Um, all will certainly guaranteed. Um, you have to, by the way, check um, a lot of grains, rice, um, barley. Um, a lot of grains have, um, they call my, my wife calls them pantry bugs. But they, a lot of grains have bugs in them. And um, we have, because we've had this trouble before, um, of these pantry bugs. They're like these tiny, tiny little um, moths with wings. Um, because we've had the problem before, we keep everything airtight. But what she discovered was, and um, what, what, what um, people will tell you is, that actually often the rice comes with bugs inside it. Quinoa. Sorry? Quinoa too. Quinoa too. Many grains come with bugs inside. Bugs, live bugs inside. They come inside the grains. And, and the only way to get them, rid of them, once your pantry is infested with them, well, if, if everything's airtight, you could keep it contained. But the only way, once your pa pantry is infested with them, the only way to get rid of them is to clean everything out and anything that's open, throw it out. Um, so, but you have to check when you have rice, um, flour, um, all of the any kinds of grains, you got to just lay it out and check it before you because they they have they very they very often have bugs in them. So, um, but so you can't control the bugs. They're going to come into your pantry whether you like it or not, or they're going to come into your kitchen whether you like it or not. You just have to be careful to try to take them out. But other than that, don't bring kosher into your kitchen. However, even if you have a kosher kitchen, you still have a problem because there's two kosher things or two kosher products that can still that are both in your kitchen that can still make your kitchen unkosher, which are milk and meat. And in this week's Torah portion, milk and meat. In this week's Torah portion, it tells us the prohibition of not mixing milk and meat. The Torah prohibition is actually not cooking milk and meat together. We're prohibited to cook milk and meat together. We're not allowed to eat milk and meat cooked together. We're not allowed to see it, even sell milk and meat cooked together. You cannot sell. You buy a um, cheeseburger, you cannot even sell it. Can't eat it, can't sell it, can't make it. So, now, in your kitchen, milk is kosher, meat is kosher. Your kitchen is going to have milk and meat. So, to resolve this problem, we came up with the double kitchen solution. So, firstly, our sages added, although the Torah only forbids cooking milk and meat, they, our sages said, don't eat any milk and meat together. Now, we are told further. Um, so, you don't cook your milk and meat together. You've got to eat them separately. Don't eat them, that's our sages say, on the same table together. Not only that, don't put them on the same plate together. Not only that, don't even have them on the same tablecloth together. I'm eating meat and you're eating milk. We have to sit at different tables or different tablecloths. You can put a placement <coughs> or something. Different tablecloths. So it should be clear. We're eating separately. Got to have separate tablecloths for milk, separate tablecloths for meat. It's got to be clear what's what. But then we also have a rule that your utensils, not only your utensils and your appliances, all need to be kosher. And this rule actually comes from much later in the Torah, where the Torah tells us about how um, Israel had war against a nation called Midian. And in this war, they capture all of Midian's things, 
and they take it home with them. What are they going to do? Throw it all out? They, um, they, they capture this nation. Um, the nation is destroyed. Midian, this tribe is destroyed. And now they take all their stuff. So they bring lots of pots and pans back home with them. And so Moses says, look at all the pots and pans that you have. You can't, you can't use them. They're not kosher. Why? They were used for non-kosher food. Since they were used for non-kosher food, the non-kosher food is actually absorbed inside the pots, the pans. The non-kosher food is absorbed inside the walls of, the of the, these utensils. So we learn from here that Torah law, I believe this is, um, this is uh, works um, in physics as well, uh, uh, in chemistry as well, um, but in Torah rule, your pots, your pans, your utensils will absorb the food that they are cooking. So if you cook non-kosher food, you cannot use those pots, cannot use those pans, you cannot use that oven that cooked non-kosher food. You cannot use plates, cutlery, that you would use with non-kosher food. So, what do you do? So it depends. So we have a system called koshering, which really deserves a class in itself. Koshering basically means that for many, many different things, um, for some things, we have a way of koshering them. There's two general um, types of koshering something. One is making a kosher. One is, or the Yiddish word was koshering. Now it's a little different. One way to do it is with boiling water. The other way to do it is with fire, with a, fi with a torch of fire. Two ways to do it. Um, or, uh, uh, or with, with, with hot fire, uh, not everything could be kosher. Not everything could be kosher. Um, only um, metals could be kosher, or metal, or stone, or wood could be kosher. Um, however, anything that is earth-based cannot be kosher. Earthenware, any earth-based products cannot be kosher. Glass and glazed products, which actually come from earth, but they're a lot smoother than regular earthenware has been debated. Glass itself is a debate, and then glazed products such as china and porcelain and other glazed products, um, they're made of mixes of glasses, uh, glass and uh, other types of earth. Um, it's debated whether you're allowed to kosher them or not. Generally, um, we avoid koshering them. So, so, um, so what do you do? So you, so, so, so you could kosher your parts of your kitchen. If you have a non-kosher kitchen, you could kosher them. It's a class for itself as to exactly all the specific rules of how to kosher, what to kosher, uh, when to kosher. But that's when you mess things up. But because of this problem of koshering, because you have this problem, we need to have, we, uh, we need to have two of everything because you don't want to have to kosher every time you do something, every time you use a pot then kosher it. So you want to be able to eat milk. You want to be able to eat meat. So what, we, what we've done traditionally is we've always had two of everything. Two meat pots and two milk pots. Uh, sorry, two pots, one for meat, one for milk. 
two sets of dishes, two sets of cutlery, two um, sets of pans, two sets of um, two ovens, two of everything. Why do you need two of everything? Because two of everything ensures that you will not mix up your milk and meat. So that's how. Um, so. So that's how the kosher um, kitchen has always looked. Now, not everything needs to. Only some things need to. What's the rule? So here's a very simple rule of thumb. Anything that you use with hot, anything that you use with heat, you need two of it. Why? According to Jewish law, the non-kosher or the milk or the meat is only absorbed in the utensils if it is hot. If it's not hot, generally with a few exceptions, it is not absorbed in the utensils. So utensils that are cold, such as a countertop. Countertops, you don't need two countertops. Meat countertops and milk countertops. Not only that, if your countertop is not kosher, that's okay as well. In my um, in my home, um, the countertop um, is not kosher because it's actually made of tile. Tile is earth-based, <coughs> right? If you have a granite countertop, you could kosher it. Or a wooden countertop, you could kosher it. They don't really make wood anymore. But if you have an earth-based countertop, you cannot kosher it. My countertop's not kosher, that's okay. Because um, you don't use your countertop for anything hot. You don't put hot food directly on the countertop. Um, you put down, uh, you put, before you put a pot down, you don't want to burn your countertop, you put something underneath it, right? Um, for that matter, now sinks, if you're going to use boiling hot water, you need to have two separate sinks. If you're not going to use boiling hot water, then you don't need two separate sinks. Most houses today come without separate sinks, right? So you're able to manage without, you're able to use it without boiling hot water. So once upon a time, life was very simple. Once upon a time, um, everybody had a pot at home, you had a pan, maybe two pots, a pan, a handful of cutlery, and some dishes, right? Life was very, very simple. Yeah? Do you know what a glass? Glasses. Glass. 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 Okay, I'm going to get to that, thank you. So once upon a time, life was very, very simple. You didn't have too many things. So Jews always spent double. Why? We had two of everything. Always. We had two of everything. We had two pots. We had two plates. We had, I mean, whatever, sets of plates, two sets of cutlery, two sets of everything. How, how many things do people have at home? Have a pot, have a pan, um, some knives. You had two sets of knives. And you made sure they were clearly marked. You always knew which ones were meat and which ones were milk. That was very simple. Um, so that was the way. And then whenever we cooked, we either cooked a meat meal or we cooked a milk meal. It was one of the two. Ovens, back in the old days, nobody had two ovens. Because the oven in people's homes doubled as their heater. The way they built their homes back then, hard to imagine, they were usually one-room homes or two-room homes. And then between the two rooms, they would have this big oven. And the oven um, would heat up the home. And it also would have a kind of a shelf where you could put food inside to cook. Right? And they would have usually a stovetop on top of the oven where you could put um, a stovetop where you could put um, pots or whatever it was on top of the oven. 
that, that's, that they only had one. So what did they do? And so what did they do? So they usually only had one oven. And the only time in the, the year that Jews would cook, would bake dairy, was for Shavuot. So the festival of Shavuot, which is the festival that we have a toast to bake dairy, and there was this big question of how to make your oven dairy. But they only had one oven. Life was very simple. Life was very, very easy. They didn't really bake dairy much. They um, didn't really cook dairy either. Um, they, or they didn't cook. They didn't fry. They, they ate dairy cold. They ate milk. They had cheeses. Uh, but they really didn't cook with it much. If they did, they would have a second oven. Maybe they would have a fire that they could put outside if they wanted some sort of omelet with cheese in the morning. They weren't that sophisticated. So, um, but but th that's what they would do. That's how they would, um, they, they didn't really cook much with dairy. They cooked mostly with meat. With time, however, our kitchens have dramatically changed. Not only our kitchens have changed, our diets have dramatically changed. Right? Once upon a time, very, very little food went into, your, um, went into your food. People only had a handful of ingredients. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine if people, when you went to a grocery store, what did a grocery store hold? Flour and sugar and salt and oil. And that was it. What more did you need? Then you went to go to the um, fruit vendors to get fruit or vegetables. You go to the bakery to get your baked goods. The baked goods consisted of bread, consisted of flour, water, and a pinch of salt, right? That's what bread was made of, right? You can't even imagine what that tastes like because nobody here has ever tasted that. Right? That's what they ate back then. Plain bread, it's tasteless. It really is. It's tasteless. Oh, they would have maybe cakes, which meant they put a little sugar in. Put a little egg in, put a little sugar in. Made it a little fancier, right? That's what they ate. Hard to imagine, right? And then they would cook. They got a little more sophisticated. They would cook with fruits and vegetables and meats. Um, but th th that's 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 all they had. They had a couple spices too. They were able to get spices weren't cheap. So the life was very simple. With time, though, life has gotten a lot more complicated. And so as life has gotten more complicated, now we have two. Now we have now we cook milk. We cook meat, which require requires us to have two different ovens. You've got to have two different ovens, an oven for milk and an oven for meat, unless you're going to choose not to cook one of the two. I mean, some people don't cook meat, some people don't cook milk, um, but you're going to need two different ovens. Stove tops. You don't need different stove tops because most of our stove tops have multiple burners. So you've got to have separate burners. Burners for milk, burners for meat. You've got to separate the two. Then you have to have separate pots and pans, right? Normally we have a whole long list of pots and pans. Separate pots and pans. Pots and pans for milk. Pots and pans for meat, right? You gotta have separate pots and pans. Um, then you gotta have separate plates and dishes, right? Separate plates and dishes mm. for milk. Separate plates and dishes for meat. Um, you gotta have silverware, separate for milk, separate for meat. Then you gotta have knives, right? You gotta have separate for milk, separate for meat. Um, and then as you have food prep things. So with food prep stuff, it gets a, li it's a little simpler. It depends what, you're do what you need it for. If you're not going to use it with milk or meat at all, you have an easy way out. You only need one of them and just don't ever use it for milk and meat. So if you have a very good set of knives that you want to use for vegetables, you have vegetable knives, you never need to ever use those to cut milk or meats. 
If you never use those lines to cut milk and meat, you never have a problem. Or if you want to, or if you have peelers, peelers are, you're never going to use them for milk or for meat. You don't need them separate for milk and meat. Or other food prep things that are not used for either milk or meat or anything with milk or meat products, you don't need a separator. You only need to have one of them. The same is also with other food utensils, a toaster. Unless you're going to put the butter on your toast before you put it in the toaster, um, you, you don't need separate um, toasters for milk and meat. I mean, you probably don't toast when you're having meat anyway. But um, you don't need separate toasters because it's just bread. Right? And there's no there's no milk or meat on the bread. Yes, Pamela? I have You can have two for milk and two for meat. And one for milk and three for meat. Sorry? If I put meat on, on a burner and then shaman that and then just have a milk base. The problem is it the problem is it drips and goes onto the burner. Right? If your if your cooking never ever spills, you'd be fine. <laughs> I don't know anyone like that. So um, but if it spills you're in trouble. So um, so some things you don't need. The same is also when you have mixers and blenders and um, sorry? What 24-hour rule? <laughs> Not that it works here, no. I'm sorry? No. No, 24-hour no. rule is bidiyavad, after the fact. No, there's no 24-hour rule. 24-hour rule? Not for this. Not for having separate milk and meat, no. no. We'll talk about it later. Let me finish off, but it's, uh, we'll talk about it later. You cannot rely on the 24-hour rule. Only after the fact. So, um, so, let's, so, so then you come to different utensils. So you could have, it depends, do you use your blender for, um, or your food processor or your mixers or your other utensils? Depends. Depends what you're using it for. If you blend your chicken or you blend your, um, or you want, to, you, use, you want to use your blender for milkshakes, then you're going to have to have separate blenders. Separate for milk, separate for meat. If you shred in the food processor, whatever you do. If you're going to use them separately, if you're going to use it for milk or meat, you're going to have them separate. If you're not going to use it for both, or you're not going to use it for one of them, then you only need one. Right? So you don't need two of everything. You only need two for things for, um, you're, only, you're only going to need two for the things you're going to be using for milk and meat. You don't need two of everything. Um, fridges, of course, you don't need fridges. That we said only things that use hot food, but you put hot food in, Fridges, you're not going to put hot food in a fridge. You don't need two fridges, of course. Um, you could put even the milk and meat right next to each other in the fridge. That's fine. Um, milk dishes and meat dishes, as long as they're not actually touching, that's fine. You can put them right next to each other in the fridge. They're cold. They're cold. It's only a problem if they're hot. They're cold. As long as they're cold, it's fine. Now, if you have storage containers, though, you have a little problem. One of the exceptions to this cold rule is that if something sits in something for 24 hours, then it also gains the taste or, or the food that's in it, it gets absorbed. So if you're going to use a storage container for milk and meat, there you have to have separate. 
your storage containers do need to be separate. Milk and meat, if they're going to sit for more than 24 hours. But if it's sitting inside a container or inside a pan or inside a, something inside the fridge, that, or inside, then that's fine. Milk and meat sit next to each other in the fridge. So long as they're, the milk and the meat are not touching each other, but just the external of the container is touching each other, um, that's fine. Or the external of the wrapping is touching each other, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, now, when it comes to dishwashers, you're also going to have a problem. Why? Why? Because the dishwasher is hot. It uses hot steam to wash your dishes, hot water. It fills with hot water, boiling hot water. So using dishwashers is a big problem. Um, so here you're going to actually need to have two dishwashers unless, unless you choose to hand wash one of the two. Either choose to hand wash your milk dishes or choose to hand wash your meat dishes. Many people don't. I only have one dishwasher because my kitchen only came with one dishwasher. Um, it was brand new, thankfully, so it's kosher. Um, but I'm not going to wash, um, but I can't wash both meat and milk. Most of our dishes are meat dishes, so we use it for meat, and we hand wash our milk dishes. You're going to have to hand wash one of them, or you're going to get yourself a separate dishwasher. Um, unfortunately, most kitchens today, unless you put it in yourself, aren't made with a two of everything. Um, so two dishwasher spots and two um, sinks. So um, for the sinks, if you only have one sink, you just don't use it with hot water. That's not that hard, right? I mean, you could use it in hot water, to warm water to wash your dishes, so long as it's not boiling hot, boiling hot where, it's, uh, where you're going to burn yourself. The, um, and then to one final thing that Stephen mentioned was cups. Glasses. Glasses, yeah. Glasses depends. Glasses itself, you're not going to use with milk. Or with well depends. If you're going to use put milk in your glasses, you should probably have separate. If they're wine glasses, you're not going to use them with milk or with meat. You don't pour meat into anything um, into your glasses. So glasses, in theory, you don't need separate glasses unless you're going to put them in the dishwasher. <laughs> if you put them in the dishwasher, whatever your dishwasher is going to do, the glasses will become the same. So you can, in theory, get away with only one set of glasses, particularly wine glasses. Um, or water glasses, glasses, so long as you're not going to use them to actually drink milk in them, you can, in theory, manage with one set of glasses. But then you got a problem, you put them in the dishwasher, then they will become whatever that dishwasher is. The same will also be if you have other utensils, by the way, such as peelers, vegetable knives, other things that you're not going to use um, with milk or meat, where you have a food processor that you don't use with milk or meat, a mixer that you don't use with milk or meat. Um, if you have any of those things, you got to hand wash the dishes up the those part those utensils afterwards because if anything is um, if you put in your dish if you put it in the dishwasher and the dishwasher is milk or meat then you'll end up with um, those things becoming milk or meat as well. Well, so if we have a one glass and normally you would start with the meat dish and then the wine and the soup dish that's okay as long as you wash it in between it's technically okay yeah. if you wash it in the sink it's okay as long as we wash them in between, yeah. You gotta wash them in the sink then. Even though there's wine glasses and there's milk or meat. Or yeah, so long as you're not. Yeah, you didn't. They, they, you didn't put hot meat or milk in either in them in either of them, right? You're okay. So, um, so anyway, so that's that's what it takes today to make a kosher kitchen. It's not that difficult, and believe it or not, um, there are very large um, the number of homes that are kosher in the U.S. is a couple million. 
So I don't know how they get to that number because only a few million Jews in the U.S. So um, I'm not sure how they reach that number. They they may, that could be. Um, but there's a very large, a very large percentage of Jews are kosher. And um, if your house was originally not kosher, your kitchen was originally not kosher, and you want to turn it kosher, most of the things in your home can be kosher. Um, some things will be particularly your porcelain or um, earthenware dishes, serving dishes or plates or those kind of things um, will, um, will be a problem. Most of your other things can be kosher and you can make kosher. It's a process where um, you have one of the rabbis will come down to your house, take an inventory of everything and sort of make a plan of what needs to be done. And then, um, and then um, we usually encourage people to first practice buying kosher food because you don't want to kosher your kitchen and then mess it up by buying the wrong thing. So you want to kind of get used to buying kosher food first. And then, um, and like I said, most things you could get here locally. There's also a store on the west side that delivers here once a week. So you could always get, so it's easy to get kosher food. And then, and then we would kosher the kitchen and then you just have to try to kind of, you get, then you got to make sure that you have two of everything or anything that you would need for milk and for meat. But then it becomes, and you got to make sure not to mix them up, right? To keep them, se to keep them fairly separate. Now the good news is, what happens when you do mix it up? And this was, John mentioned it before, the 24 hour rule. Um, there's a lot of different rules. When you do mix things up, you usually don't mess it up. And it's somewhat complicated. In other words, we have, the, we have in Judaism, we have rules known as lekatchila, the way you're supposed to do things. And then what happens if you messed up? Two different sets of rules. So ideally, you've got to have two of everything and keep things separate. If you messed it up, most of the time it's still okay. Do you have to do anything? It depends. It depends. The, the, not usually. Most of the time it's still okay. Um, in other words, our sages m designed your kitchen in such a way that if you follow the rules to start with, with two of everything, keeping things separate, your chances of messing things up are very, very slim. Even if you do a little mess up here and there, you usually won't, would, will not have messed up your kitchen to the point where you need to start koshering things again. So there's a lot of, in other words, they made the rules of what you should do very strict in a way that if you slept up here and there, you're usually okay. I mean, we have a number of rules for, um, Slip-ups are somewhat complicated, um, not for today, but... Um, you mentioned boiling water and fire. I thought there was another thing to mix up. It's not kosher. No, 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 those are kosher. That's a totally what, separate. What about a fabric? A tablecloth, napkins? Fabrics can't be kosher. Um, tablecloths have to say milk or meat. Napkins... They're not food. I mean, you don't put your food on napkins, your hot food on napkins. Uh, you, if you wash it, uh, it's fine. You're not eating off the napkin. You don't need tablecloths. You just need separate tablecloths. But napkins, but if, let's say, milk falls on your meat tablecloth or meat falls on it, doesn't matter. You just, the tablecloth is more to know what you're eating right now. Right now I'm eating milk. Right now I'm eating meat. That's why you have to have the tablecloth. It's kind of a sign of what you're doing. But you're not eating off the tablecloth or off the hot food off the tablecloth. You're not eating hot food off your napkins. As long as you just throw it in the wash and you're fine. Yes, Renee? What, what about burying your or dishes in the earth during the year? I heard of that one. But There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of what we call, in the Yiddish term is Baba Meisses. Baba Meisses <laughs> is the stories from the Babas. Um, 
what what happened is over the years people weren't really keeping uh, were either far from Jewish communities or not really actively keeping kosher properly, and so all sorts of different. They're usually generally based on on a real fact, and then they kind of, um, you know, the, it starts off with a real rule, and then it um, for somehow over the years it gradually grows. So yeah, no, you, you can't do that. I mean. And I've seen people with knives in the ground, and that's that, 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 that's not really a um, kosher kosher. That's not the, the real kosher rule. But you do, yeah. So it's not that hard to keep kosher. Just to summarize, I'll take your question a second. It's not that hard to keep kosher. It's um, and it, it, it's doable. And a lot of a lot of people have done it and do it. And if anyone wants to go ahead and do it, be happy to advise everybody, or myself, or Rabbi David, one of our other rabbis. And, uh, it, it's, it's, a it's a great undertaking to do. Um, and I think just to finish off finally, today we live in a time, I know I'm over time, let me start a little late. We live in a time today where people love that concept of food discipline. It's extremely popular. There's everyone I meet. They're vegetarian, they're vegan, they're... Um, they're gluten-free, thank you, GMO-free. There's all these different um, organic. People love the idea of food discipline. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why people like the idea. Nobody, wa everybody, nobody wants to feel I could have whatever I want. Everyone wants to, likes to be disciplined, likes to be stuck within a set of rules. So people create their own sets of rules. Most people that only eat organic food don't even know what organic means. <laughs> That's from my, from my discovery. Most people have no idea what organic actually means. Um, most pe so, but people like food discipline. They like to say, this is better than that. I don't eat that. They like the idea of walking into someone's home and says, say, does this have any, um, does, does this have any, sh any um, sugar in it? Does this have any gluten in it? And they like questioning. And the Ramban writes, the kosher rules, unlike some rules in the Torah, are what we call mishpatim, they're common sense. Some rules in the Torah are rituals that are symbolic. Shabbat is symbolic of God's creation of the world. Passover is symbolic of our exodus. And then there's some rules that we call chukim, rules without reason. Kosher is a rule without a reason. There's no common sense to kosher. There's no reason for it. It's been our sages already thousands of years ago made clear that kosher has nothing to do with health. There's a lot of kosher things that are very unhealthy for you and a lot of non-kosher things that are very healthy. So it has nothing to do with health. They're rules that God made. But the Ramban says that the reason we can still learn a lesson from it. And part of the power of kosher is it teaches you kedushah. Kedushah means holiness or separation. It teaches you discipline. I don't eat that. You walk into a supermarket, you can only eat 50% of the things here. You cannot eat everything. It teaches you a certain discipline when it comes to your food. Your food. It teaches you a certain control. So rather than going vegan, going vegetarian, I actually, um, I've seen people that worked, had co-workers that were kosher, and then suddenly you notice that you're, co I've seen this happen. Uh, I know a few people that they're, and suddenly you see that the co-workers of the kosher individuals suddenly go vegan. Why did that happen? Or their co-workers, I see it all the time, or their co-workers suddenly become gluten-free. Why did that happen? Because they enjoy, they see their workers are, everyone's having a party, I don't eat that. 
I don't need that. And people kind of are jealous of it. They like that idea, right? I don't want to be able to eat everything. I want to be able to say, no, I don't eat that. And so people, we, we all feel empowered in a sense with discipline. Discipline really, um, while you're often told that the more options you have, the more, the more powerful you are. But the truth is the more disciplined we are. And self-discipline, the more powerful we feel. We feel empowered by discipline. So kosher gives us that sense of discipline. It gives us that sense that, you know what, you can't eat everything. Is it kosher? You check, you see first, is it kosher? Is it okay? Not everything's okay to eat. Some things are not okay to eat. Um, can I eat this? Can I eat that? Um, can I cook it like this? Can I cook it like that? You cannot have every food. Yes, it's a good food, but I'm not going to eat it anyway. I'm going to watch you eat it. And uh, we enjoy saying that, right? We like that kind of power to say no. So um, that's the beauty of kosher. And I think more than anything, as our society today um, becomes more and more indulgent, in other words, more and more things are available um, to us and we have more and more things pushed in our faces, because today, wherever you turn, you see nonstop ads um, for everything and everything's being thrown into your face. It's a good feeling to say, no, I don't, I'm, I'm going to ignore that. I don't go there. I don't do that. I don't eat that. And so kosher really gives us that opportunity and that the Ramban says 